Our lesson will be entitled, And God Remembered Noah. God Remembered Noah. We'll be in Genesis chapter number 8 if you have your Bibles, and I trust you will. And uh, we'd like to remind the congregation this morning that while we're talking about the Genesis flood, we might as well be honest because we have a flood of evil, a flood of evil equal to the Genesis flood that's pouring in upon us across America and the Western world today. It's a flood so great, so the magnitude of the flood of evil is really major. And my heart cries out today for the farmers in Holland, Italy, the United States, Canada, who are going to be deprived of their fertilizer. They are going to be seeing diesel prices scale upward as the New World Order, second phase of the pandemic, attempt now to wean America and the world from fossil fuels. By 2030, their goal is to have no American-made cars burning fossil fuel manufactured anymore in this country. So there's big things happening, people. We have a flood of evil coming, not coming, it's here. And I pray and beseech all of us to remember that just as God delivered Noah and his family in the great flood, that he will deliver his remnant in the flood that is now upon us. Dear Father in heaven, thank you for this beautiful day. Thank you for this congregation that has assembled here from across southwest Missouri. We pray, Father in heaven, for these dear sheep who have gathered into the sheepfold. Be their shepherd. Guide them, uphold them, dear shepherd, our Lord Jesus Christ, and keep every one of them in your perfect will. We pray for all those who will join us in this lesson across America and the Western world. We send our love, our prayers, our best wishes to all Israelites who believe and trust and have rest, rested their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Eternal God. May you all be blessed. Father in heaven, touch this lesson with your word. May your word, the inerrant, inspired, infallible Word of God register in our hearts, in our minds, that we may always be ready to give an answer to anyone that asks us of the reason for the hope that lies within us. Help us, dear Lord God, and move in our hearts today to the endless praise of Jesus Christ. I beg of thee, amen and amen. When the Bible speaks of the faith of Noah, I'm reminded of how many people across our covenant family in my lifetime that I have debated over the Genesis flood. I have probably been in more heated discussions 
on the Genesis flood than almost any other topic. I pray, I wish to God that it could have been some other topics, but this seems to be the area of the greatest doubt among our Israelite people. Now, I'm not indicting our people for anything, but I want them to know that if you sign on to the first verse in Genesis, say it with me, in the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. Brother, if you can accept that God created this entire universe in six days, that in six days God brought the entire universe into existence, the Genesis flood should be a cakewalk for you. It should be a no, a, just a, a non-issue. But that isn't the way it is, and so... We press on now as we turn to Genesis 8:1, and the Bible begins with an, an announcement of enormous importance. So if you'll turn to Genesis chapter number 8, we'll be there in the book of Origins, book of Genesis. And uh, you know, one time we attempted to actually teach through the book of Genesis. I ended up with 56 lessons and gave up because the congregation got interested in hearing something other than Genesis. So I never did make it through the book. The book of Genesis is the foundation for everything you're ever going to believe about the Bible. If you think of the Bible as a big ball of yarn, every thread in that ball of yarn has an origin in Genesis. If you know the book of Genesis... It's the foundation from which you can launch biblical knowledge and truth in almost every part of theology that you can na name. So in the book of Genesis, God has taken time now to give us 86 consecutive verses on the Genesis flood. It's the longest continuing narrative in the Bible of one subject between the covers of your Bible. So I mentioned that, and as we look now at Genesis 8, 1, let's read the first verse together. And God remembered Noah and every living thing and all the cattle that was with him in the ark, and God made a wind to pass over the earth and the waters assuaged. So let's look now and ask ourselves the question, God remembered Noah. Now we want to look at that, those three words. They're, they're far more important than we may think about because they demand from you your worldview about what you think of God. From God's perspective, beloved, God does not have to remember anything because he de he's never forgotten anything. So this has nothing to do with, with the sovereignty and the, and the bigness of God. God remembered Noah. God is a sovereign, omnipotent, that means all-powerful. He's omniscient, meaning all-knowing. He's omnipresent, meaning he's everywhere, at all places, at all times. God has never remembered anything... Because God has never forgotten anything. 
God knows everything and he knows it comprehensively and he knows it instantly. He has never learned anything because there's nothing that God can learn. He needs no more knowledge because there is no knowledge that he has not created that is by definition true knowledge. Because God is omniscient, omniscient meaning all-knowing, God has known everything there is to know from before the foundation of the world. There has never been a day when God did not know everything, and God does not need to look down the tunnel of time to see how the future is going to work out. God, not, God is not in heaven biting his fingernails, wondering how the old new world order is going to work out. God had a plan, his own plan, for the builders of the Tower of Babel. And God will have his own plan for the builders of the new world economic council, the new name for the old world order. So God is never going to need anyone's insight. We never need to pray that God will be given wisdom. He's the author of all wisdom. He's the author of all knowledge. When the Bible says, however, that God remembered Noah, that is for you and I. That God will remember his remnant. God remembered Noah. Noah has been packed into that ark with his family. It's a large, large structure. And those who have been to the ark encounter and have walked through it, I believe it takes them around five hours to do that, will know that it is the largest single structure that was built in human history up until about the 1800s. So that is a phenomenal engineering project that Noah accomplished. So when Noah is inside that ark, and by the time we come to Genesis 8, 1, they have been in that ark five months, 150 days, under biblical reckoning of the biblical calendar of time, 30 days to a month. Five months inside that ark in turbulent water, with violent heated water under the ground being pressed upwards, breaking the crust of the earth, bulging up mountains, creating a whole new world that will greet Noah when he leaves the ark. So it was not a picnic to be inside that ark. Remember, the ark is designed for stability. It was designed to be the truly unsinkable boat of all time. Now, when the Titanic sailed in about 12,000, correction, about 1912, they called it, headlines in England, the unsinkable Titanic. That was the headline. It was unsinkable, according to the engineers and the captain and all the people that boarded that ship, and you know what the sad story of the Titanic was. But the ark was sealed. It had one window, one door, and a covering over the entire top 
so that it was capable of having water dash over the entire structure and stay afloat. It was unsinkable. But God designed it, and that's why it was unsinkable. Now, God remembered Noah. And that's, that's marvelous because Noah's inside that ark. He knows that God told him to build the ark, to get into the ark. He knows that God closed the door after he got into the ark. But what Noah doesn't know is how long he's going to be in there. Will it be a month? It's going to rain 40 days and 40 nights. Will it be just 40 days and 40 nights? The rain stops and he's out. No. Noah doesn't know how long he's going to be in that, but he knows by the time we come to Genesis 8, 1, that he's been there five long months inside that ark without sighting land, without touching land. And I don't know if Noah's family loved each other, but if they didn't, it must have been tough being inside that ark for five months. Before that voyage is going to end, they're going to be in that ark for more than one long year. Now, you've heard the old phrase, cabin fever. Can you imagine having cabin fever aboard the ark without any place to go? So you're going to have to tough it. If you have an argument with someone, you better resolve it because they're not going to be leaving you very far. They can might hide behind a, a creature in the ark or something, but you're going, to, you're going to have to work your way through the trouble. So when the Bible says Noah remembered God, that God remembered Noah, that is really significant because to personalize that, beloved, how many times have you ever been in a crisis in life and wondered, well, does God know my problem? My problem is persisting. Why is God not answering my prayers? I've prayed. I have fasted. I have waited and no answer has come. I guess God has forgotten me. Don't ever allow yourself to get in that position because God never forgets his own. God will never lose sight of you on his divine radar. He has you, he had, his, had you on his mind before the foundation of the world when he chose you an election into faith in Christ. He had you on his mind when he hung from a cross at Mount Calvary. And he's got you on his mind today, tomorrow, and forever. So be brave, be bold, be courageous. Suffering is part of our walk through this world. Jesus himself said, if anyone will come after me, let him deny himself, self-denial. Let him pick up his cross, take up his cross daily and follow me. So everyone will have some kind of a cross. Some of them will be heavy, heavy, almost unbearable, and others will be lighter. And for the ones who have a lighter cross, God intends for us to help those who have what might appear to be an unbearable cross. But God knows, and God will never forget us. And God will not forget us in this ongoing pandemic phase two that's now it was now unleashed 
And they gave the final touch-up at Devis, Switzerland in May of this summer, when more than 100 billionaires, millionaires gathered together to plan how the rest of us are going to live our lives. So we need to look at Noah, because Noah is one of the most remarkable people in the world, and I'm so happy that we finally, long last, we got a Noah in this congregation. Now, it took us a long time, a long time, we had one one time, but we have a newly arrived Noah, for which I'm grateful. So I want to I wanna quickly now tell you a little bit about Noah, because Hebrews 11, 7 gives you a summary, a wonderful summary of his life. And he does it, the inspired Word of God does it in one verse, which we've looked at before, but now we're going to look at it in a different way. So we say, number one, according to Hebrews eleven seven, Noah was a man of faith. By faith, Noah did what he did. The Bible tells us that faith is the substance of things hoped for. Hebrews 11:1, 1, the evidence of things not seen. Noah's faith was resting on hope. The hope that the covenant that God made with him to build the ark, get into that ark, was a covenant issued by a sovereign God who would see his covenantal, covenantal promise through to the end. Noah believed that the judgment that was coming, he didn't know what the judgment was going to consist of. He just knew that it had never rained on the earth, and now the rain is going to come for 40 days and 40 nights. What is that going to mean? Nobody needed a boat in those days because the ratio of land to water was much different than it is today. When Noah was alive and born into the world, he lived the first 600 years of his life where the earth was one continent, one continent, and there were oceans of water in the canopy over the heavens. A much different earth than we're accustomed to today. And then the second part of Hebrews eleven seven is, Noah was warned of God, being warned of God of things not seen. Noah was motivated to do something about the trouble that was coming. Now, I, I beg of you today, beloved, with the flood of evil coming in our, in our time of history, the flood of evil upon us begs us, cries out, prepare ye, prepare ye for the day of judgment that must be coming at the end of whatever this Plandemic is phase one, two, three, four. Who, who knows how many phases it's going to have? But we need faith to know that God is sovereign and He will never forsake His remnant. God will see His remnant through to the end. The Bible says that number three, Noah moved with fear. It has been said that America is a nation of people that no longer fear God. P. 
people who truly respect and have reverence for God are motivated, motivated to live in service and obedience to Him. Noah possessed a very wholesome fear of God. We are told in Hebrews 10, 31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hand of the living God. Can you imagine the fear that people had when Noah had begged them to get into the ark? A preacher of righteousness for 120 years, his converts consisted of his own family. But he kept on preaching. When the door closed and the raindrops began to fall, I'm sure that there were all kinds of people that were taking another look at a man called Noah and his long struggle to build a boat that people jeered and ridiculed. And people are going to ridicule and jeer you if you walk down a path that is leading to the kingdom of God because you're going to live a different life than most people. Then the Bible says, number four, that Noah prepared an ark. He did what God commanded him. That was a tremendous act of obedience. Noah had never seen rain. I doubt seriously if he had ever ridden in much of a boat. Might have been some small little boat on some lake. But he was asked to do something that was an incredible engineering feat to be performed in his generation. So Noah was asked to build an ark. An ark that has a magnitude far beyond the typical person. Most Americans have grown up with storybooks that show the ark, with the first story being the main part of the boat. Then the second story is little, smaller. The third story is finally real small. And people grow up with all kinds of misconceptions as children with the story of Noah and the ark. And they, over time, just diminish the importance of that story. Now, the, number five, the Bible tells us, Hebrews eleven seven that Noah did everything that he did for this reason, to the saving of his house. Saving of his house. So men, listen up. Noah was a man who looked out for his family. He was a man in charge of his family. He was a man who knew that one day God would hold him accountable for his family. And that's why it's awesome to be a man. Because you're chargeable to the family God has given you. And you, we will all answer. Every one of us will answer for the manner in which we guided our family. As the spiritual leader, as the provider, as the protector. The man is the head of the family, the woman is the heart. And we bring together the head and the heart in a good marriage. The greatest legacy that a man and a woman can leave in this world will be the family you, you bring forward. That will be the single greatest legacy. 
I'm not minimizing all kinds of other wonderful, wonderful legacy blessings that God will bless you with. But that idea of building a family is, is beyond question the single greatest, most motivating reason to be a man in the earth today. If you will be a good father, a, well, if you will be a good husband and a good father, that will be the greatest legacy that you will, will leave for posterity. There's a lot of threads to the responsibility of building a family. I'm sure that Noah got tested in every one of them. One of the primary threads is the marriage. Marriage requires a lot of maintenance. And if you have a high-maintenance wife, good luck. It's going to take a lot from you. If you got a low-maintenance wife, God bless you. As a man, you'll be happier because she's going to be able to weather a lot of storms easier without nearly as much attention. So choose the woman you marry with care. Now there's enormous, enormous responsibility in being a husband and a father. When Noah built the ark, he had to convince his wife, had to con convince his sons that this is going to be a good thing. Noah was a man who was willing to step aside and be a different man. He was willing to walk down a different road. And that's what you have to be to be a good family man, raise a, a godly family of children in this world today. You have to be a man who is not going to travel the well-worn path that many men travel. You're going to have to find that pathway that's filled with a lot of grass because it's not traveled that much. The bottom line is that if you think of the world population during the flood, God had narrowed down the righteous, the family worthy of going inside the ark to one man and his family of children and their wives. They carried no little children into that ark. They were all grown people, eight souls. And I'm not counting any of the representatives of the individually pure, distinct races that were indeed aboard the ark. That's another topic for another time because there's a lot of questions associated with that. So God has always worked with the remnant, folks. If you're part of the majority, you might want to scratch your head and ask if you're going the right direction. Because the minority is where God has always worked. So one God-fearing family that's raising God-fearing children with a God-fearing husband and wife are not going to be the rule. They'll be the exception of any time in history. Noah's was no exception. Now it's been said 
that large doors always swing on small hinges. And history has swung open its door to the remnant, to small minorities of people. Consider at the time of the Reformation, the monolithic Roman Catholic Church was the one church. And that was the church that set the law. Not necessarily God's law, church law. One man had the courage to nail 95 theses on a church door in Wittenberg, Germany, in protest of that monolithic Roman Catholic Church. That was a little spark that ignited a fire called the Protestant Reformation that turned the world upside down before it was over in the early 1500s. Just a remnant, just a tiny handful of people, but that's the way it's always been. Jesus fed 10,000 men, women, and children the loaves and the fishes. 5,000 men plus all their wives and all their children. At the crucifixion, They'd all disappeared but a handful. But it only takes one because one with God is a majority. And if God be for us, who then? Who then can be against us? So, the remnant is very important. One other note on that. In the very next century after the Reformation, in the 1600s, remember that the Church of England, otherwise called the Anglican Church, had a stronghold on England. And everybody was required to subject themselves to the Anglican hierarchy of that church. But there was a handful of people who said no, this church needs purified. And they became known as the Puritans. Just a handful of people, and their heart's desire was that their church, they loved their church. They wanted to see it purified. But the hierarchy of that church didn't want to be purified. So on August 24, 1662, 2,000 Puritan clergymen who had left the church were ordered to close their pulpits. That remnant of Puritans became the spark that eventually promoted the arrival of large numbers of other Puritans to join their Puritan forebears who had already come to America. So God's always with the remnant. But you don't just become a part of the, rag, uh, of the remnant because you want to be. There's a, there's a price to pay for being part of a remnant. It's not easy to be counted as a remnant Christian. There's a price to pay. Now the sixth quality of Noah was that God says in Hebrews eleven seven that he condemned the world by his action. Amen. 
Now the world today looks at Christianity with great disdain, and everybody knows that. If you're a Bible-believing, blood-washed, spirit-filled, devil-chasing, sin-hating Christian, the world's not going to be happy with you. Because you're going to be so obnoxious to them that they wish you would disappear. Just by the simple fact that they know that you're living by a different master than the one they serve. When Noah was faithful in his walk with God, the Bible says that he condemned the world. You know, the Bible tells us that the saints will one day judge angels. I didn't say that, but St. Paul did, and it's found in 1 Corinthians. And finally, the Bible says that Noah became heir of the righteousness which is by faith. What an accolade for Noah. Is there anything greater than to be called an heir of the righteousness that comes by Christ through His grace and by our exercising of faith? Now, Noah was number 10 and in the generations from Adam to Noah, 10th in that generation. Noah's grandfather was Lamech. His great-grandfather was Methuselah. So Noah knew a lot of the patriarchs. Noah was 500 years old. And I think that he had grown so discouraged he didn't know if he should get married. Not unlike a lot of young men in America today who are too cowardly to take a wife. They don't, want to, they, don't have the, they don't have the constitutional fortitude to marry a girl. So they aimlessly wander through life in their celibate status. And of course, they boast in the fact that they have all the amenities of being a man without marriage. Shame on them and shame on the women that accommodate them. Now, <clears throat> Noah had married one of the offspring of his great-great-grandfather, Enoch. Now, that is, if you believe the book of Jasher, which is mentioned twice in your Bible, for the benefit of those who like to dig into detail, Noah was an unusual man. Can you, can you imagine the repertoire of knowledge he had gained from his grandfather Methuselah, correction, his great-grandfather his grand, his great Methuselah, his grandfather, no, Lamech was his, no, was his father, so uh, Methuselah would have been his grandfather, Enoch would have been his great-grandfather. So that is the Noah that God remembered in Genesis 8.1. So we'll return to the narrative now. And we'll read verses 2, and we'll go all the way to 5. Verses 2 through 5, Genesis 8. Boys and girls, are you with me? Out loud, everyone that will read. The fountains of the deep 
and the windows of heaven were stopped. The rain from heaven was restrained. The waters returned from off the earth continually. And after the end of the 150 days, five months, the waters were abated. And the ark rested in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, upon the mountains of Ararat. And the waters in a decrease continually until the tenth month, in the tenth, in the tenth month, in the tenth month, on that first day of the month, were the tops of the mountains seen. Five months, 150 days, and the ark is resting on the ground. But it's not very lowly elevated terrain. It's about 17,000 feet in altitude where the ark came aground. Now, they had, not, they had no window to look out at, at this time. <coughs> Excuse me. So they're inside that ark, but they know, they're, they, know they have grounded the ark. It's no longer, it's no longer floating. They're on the ground, <clears throat> and that's a great relief to Noah, I'm sure, and all the family that was inside that ark. Now, beloved, across the ripples of time, all of us have been tested in our lives. I don't know any Christian that has not gone through some kind of a, a test, some enormous testing, others minor. When the Bible says that the fountains of the deep were stopped, that subterranean water that was pouring out of the earth from the subterranean aquifers and regions of the earth, bursting through the earth and melting even granite rock because of its heat was doing things to this earth that very few people have ever closely examined. Praise God for those who have. In any event, beloved, when the ark rested on the mountains of Ararat, nobody has the ability to know exactly, precisely if what we call the mountains of Ararat are the mountains that the ark rested on, but it is believed by all the people, many of whom have gone there, looked closely, studied everything they know about it, believe that it is. It's in the far eastern side of Turkey, the mountains of Ararat, and there's more than one mountain. It's kind of a little range, but there's two peaks that rise very high. One of them is the highest, it's around 17,000 feet, and the lesser of the two is around 12,000 feet. Now, when you consider the elevation that the, the ark has come aground to, think of all the water that's still on the earth. Think of the enormous ocean of water that covers the earth at the end of 150 days. Now, the beautiful thing about the verses here we've read is that the windows of heaven were stopped 
the fountains of the deep were, were, were closed. And we already know from previous study that the rain had stopped at the end of 40 days and nights. So there's no more water coming up from, up from beneath or down from above. But there's a volume of water so huge that it's going to take a while for that water to find its level in the new world that's being formed. So consider all that as we think about this wonderful story and return now to our Bible once again. And this time we're going to go to, we're going to start at verse 6. We're going to re read beginning at verse number 6. And as we do this, beloved, I'm going to invite all of our children to join in now. And everyone else as well. So let's begin reading at verse number 6, and we'll go verse 6 and 7. And it came to pass at the end of 40 days that Noah opened the window of the ark which he had made. Now this is 40 days after the 150 days have ended. Forty days after the ark came to rest, Noah opened the window of the ark. Now that, that must have been with great interpretation. It's, it's, see, Noah doesn't know what's going to happen when he opens that window. He can only pray that he's, he's, that he's done this at an appropriate time. He sent forth a raven which went forth to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Now, the Bible does not say the raven came back. Noah was a very wise man. Why did he choose the raven? Well, because the raven flies high, so the, ra the raven had a better vision of whatever dry ground might have been available. And the raven also is a flesh-eating bird, so it could see dead uh, fish in the water and so forth for food. The Bible just doesn't say that the raven came back. So the raven has been, uh, there's been sermons preached on this, where they liken the raven to a person who loves their old world life. They don't want the, the life in Christ. They don't want to become a part of the new creation in Christ. They're happy to continue to live on the flesh of the old world. They're happy with a flesh, being a flesh-eating, flesh-living creature. That's old world people. People who love the world and reject Jesus. Think about it. That's, that's what old-time preachers would do with this. And then, as we look here, we're re reading on now, church. In verse 8, join with me, also he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters were abated from off the face of the earth. Now, why did Noah choose a dove? Do you think he had his reasons? Well, a dove is the symbol of the Holy Spirit. A dove is a bird with the symbol of peace and goodwill to you. 
But a dove also flies very low to the ground. So it's going to test the depth of the water for Noah. His, his way of testing how deep that water remains. Because that dove is not going to, going to stay like the raven if he can't find plenty of dry ground close to a landing place. So the Bible says, verse 9, the dove found no rest for the sole of the feet. She returned unto him into the ark, for the waters were on the face of the whole earth. Now, people who oppose the global flood will say, well, that whole earth there is the whole part of a part of the earth. It's an amazing thing how people will try to wrestle with the plain, literal language of the Bible. The only living witness to the Genesis flood is God. And he left a wonderful testimony. And we're reading about it now. And so, the dove was pulled back into the ark. Verse 10, and he stayed yet another seven days. And he sent forth the dove out of the ark. Now you'll notice that we have increments of time every seven days a week ends. Is that telling you anything? It's telling me that Noah was a Sabbath keeper. He couldn't look out the window to look at the moon to see if there was going to be a rotational Sabbath. He had to go by account. And if you've been following the narrative here, Noah kept, or somebody did, maybe his wife did. But they're, they're writing down the day, the month of their arrival at point A, B, and C. I mean, this is detailed, folks. Give God the credit. No, let's give him the glory and the honor of knowing what he wanted to write to us. Verse 11. And the dove came into him in the evening. And lo, in her mouth was an olive leaf. Oh my goodness, the first sign of life that they have seen since they boarded the ark. Plucked off so Noah knew that the waters were abated from off the earth. And yet he stayed seven other days. Whoops. Another increment of seven days. And sent forth the dove, which returned not again unto him anymore. Noah knew then, right then and there, that the dove did not return unto him. She was anxiously waiting for the other doves to come out of the ark and join her. Because she found plenty of food to eat. Verse 13. And it came to pass in the 601st year. In the first month. The first day of the month. The waters were dried up from off the earth. Noah. Oh my gosh. Noah 
removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the, gra the ground was dry. On day number 313, that's where we are now, and you'll notice the particular wording, what the Bible says here, that on the, in the 600th year, that's of Noah's life, in the first year, the first month, first day of the month, the covering of the ark is taken off. Now that was no little task. Incidentally, folks, just as a side note here, We've got some people sitting in this congregation who went through the ark a few days ago. And I think they will confirm to anybody that has an ear to hear that Noah and his family needed some help aboard that ark. And the pairs of distinctive, pure, undiluted other races were there to help them. There was a happy union of those people because they all knew their place. They all knew what, how they fit into the scheme of God's created world. And there was harmony, just like there was harmony in this country before the one-worlders decided to integrate America. I know that to be true because I lived in that old world where there was peace and tranquility. Very rarely was there any racial incidents, a, a racial incident happening in this country of any monumental significance, at least in the state of Missouri in the Midwest, before Brown versus Board of Topeka in 1954, under the point of bayonets and loaded guns, integrated our schools and prepared to integrate the race of our children, white children, with the blood of the alien. I'm in verse 14 now. And in the second month, on the seven and twentieth day of the month, was the earth dried. And God spake unto Noah the beautiful words, Go forth, young man, go forth. Go forth of the ark, thou and thy wife and thy sons and thy sons' wives with thee. Bring forth with thee every living thing that is within thee, that is with thee, of all flesh. Now, of course, anti-flood people will discriminate that little term, all flesh, and say, well, that's, that's not, that's just Noah. And they had just gone to a little region, some people call it the Tarim Basin. So all flesh was not anybody other than just Noah and his family and why they would need to gather all these other creatures aboard the ark. If, that, if the ark was, why did God ask Noah to build the ark in the first place? He had 120 years to move to higher ground. That was a long time to make a journey. But guess what? There's going to be no higher ground to go to. 
So now we have a procession of the ark. Oh, how sweet the rain. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. And Noah went forth and his sons and his wife and his son's wife with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, every fowl, whatsoever creepeth upon the earth after their kinds, went forth out of the earth, out, out of the ark. So beloved, let me summarize and say this. All of the pure, original, created beings were inside the ark to preserve the individual integrity of all the races that God created in the beginning. And in Genesis 1.31, he looked at everything that he had made and said, Behold, it is very good. So there's nobody coming in here from a foreign uh, planet. You know, I hear so many weird stories. My goodness gracious, if people read their Bible and not go to the internet, they might learn something. But in any event, that procession out of the ark, beloved, was glorious, marvelous. What a vindication of the power of God. They had survived. 370 days aboard the ark. That's a long time for a cruise. I've heard people that came back from a 10-day cruise and said, not again, not again. Especially those who got caught in a problem where they lost their electricity and power. And suddenly the Facilities didn't work. Hey, they had that problem on the ark. But guess what? They had a way to solve it. And that's why you need to look closely into the history of the ark and the flood. And if you've studied far enough and profoundly enough, you're going to have an answer for all those multiple, multiple questions that you're going to be bombarded with by the doubting Thomases. Now, folks, we've got four minutes left. We're going to finish this chapter. So, fasten your seat belts. Keep your feet close together, your head down, and we're going to land this chapter here pretty quick. And Noah... First thing out of the ark, whoa, build an altar unto the Lord, Jehovah. He took of every clean beast and every clean fowl and offered burnt offerings unto the altar. They knew the law of clean and unclean. Law of clean and unclean was certainly known before the flood. This is a monumental call to every man. Your God and the love and worship that God, of that God is the first priority of your life. It is your responsibility to guide your wife and children in worship to your God. Look at Noah placing God, his love and worship to that God, can you imagine how anxious Noah was to get on with the, 
the work of dominion, to explore this new world that he had landed in. Now he's 17,000 feet altitude, he's not going to stay there. He, Noah's going to have to pick up, pack up and move. But he's going to do something before he does. Before he picks up, packs up and moves, he's going to worship God. When Noah had offered his offerings, verse 21, and Jehovah smelled a sweet savor, and he said in his heart, I will not again curse the ground anymore for men's sake, for man's sake. For the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I let in again, will I again smite anymore everything living as I have done. Beloved, when you look at that verse closely, it is sad to think we've made it all through that flood for one year and about 10 days or so. But when they leave the ark, they haven't lost their sin nature. Sin nature followed them out of the ark. It was in the ark, which might account for the person called Canaan later in Genesis chapter 9. But that's another story for another lesson someday. So, the imagination of man's mind, God tells us, will be evil from his youth. The Bible says that sinners come out of the womb as transgressors. Oh, really? I thought children were born innocent. Oh, goodness. No, they're not born into a state of innocence. That's why children have to be taught and schooled into what they believe about God. The Bible says then in the last verse, While the earth remaineth, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, and day and night shall not cease. Now, church, here's what we need to know in, in ending this lesson. Do you know that there were no seasons before the flood? The earth was like one giant greenhouse. The ultraviolet rays that Filtered down through those, that canopy of water provided longevity. Man lived past 900 years. Noah lived to be 930. Methuselah lived to be 969. But 10 years after the, 10 generations after the flood, uh, Abraham died at 175 years. And he's called an old, old man. So what happened? What happened? What did the flood change? 
Well, that too is another event for another time. Because now, this lesson will end now. <laughs>